All right, if you would, turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. I love the Psalms. It's been said that every human emotion has been expressed in the Psalms. I have no idea how to verify that, right? But let me just say that resonates with me somehow. Every emotion. The emotions of the psalmist run the gamut. They worship in ways that creates within me a longing to feel what they feel and to see what they see. Express myself the way they express themselves. I long for that. They often express incredible faith and trust in difficult days, and that encourages me to follow suit and to trust the way they do. Other times, they're just flat out terrified. They're frightened. Enemies are all around them. Sometimes they're spitting angry. They're mad. They curse their enemies. They want God to come down and take care of them. Right or wrong, there are some times I've been there too. Lord, just take care of them, would you? Can we at least be honest enough for that? The psalmists are so honest and raw. I personally think that that's what makes psalms so, so resonate with me and for all of those, all of us down through the years. They were honest in their trying to understand God and their world. They try to make sense of what they see and they experience. And that's what we find happening here in Psalm 73. The psalmist is trying to make sense of what he sees. He knows what is true about God and he knows that he blesses his children, but his experience doesn't seem to fit his theology. You ever been there? He just, the pieces don't seem to fit. He can't, he can't make it happen. And, and frankly, I appreciate his struggle because sometimes the pieces don't fit for me. Things happen to me and my family and those whom I love that don't make any sense in light of what I know to be true about God. And, and just frankly, it's been my experience with my kids. My kids have, have suffered in, in different ways, in some pretty intense ways. And I know from this daddy's heart, loving them with everything that is within me, I would never do that to my kids. I can't fathom purposefully allowing that kind of pain in their lives. I just can't do it. I, I can't make the pieces fit. And yet I know that my Heavenly Father loves them more than I love them. I know that to be true. He's more wise, and He's even more compassionate than I am. And yet, see, I have trouble putting the pieces together. From my vantage point, what they experience as children of God simply doesn't make any sense. Lining up my experience with my theology. Well, I'm going to venture this morning, and I'm not stepping too far out on a limb, because I don't think I'm the only one here that has that trouble. I think many of you struggle at times. 
trying to make your theology fit your experience. Lord, why? Why are you doing this? It doesn't make any sense. This morning, we're going to take a look at what the psalmist did with his life when his life didn't make any sense, and perhaps we can draw some lessons from that, okay? So with that, let's read Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then... I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall in ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to every... One who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of God. We see the psalmist had a dilemma. And here's the dilemma. Why do bad people prosper and good people suffer? That's his dilemma. And it's more than philosophical with him. It's what he sees in his experience. He says, why is it that I see evil men enjoy the good life? While I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to obey. I'm trying to obey your precepts. I try to obey your commands. And frankly, my life just doesn't look very good. Why is it, Lord? Nothing seems to go right for me. The wicked seem to have the world by the tail, yet I have nothing but hardship and poverty. This doesn't make sense to me, God. Ever been there? 
I think his, honest, his question is honest. It is true that he is throwing one whale of a pity party. He's feeling sorry for himself like nobody's business. Not very noble. But it is honest. And frankly, it's a little bit too familiar for my taste. But he observes the wicked. Verse 3, he says, they're prosperous. Verse 4, he says, they're always healthy. They're fat and happy. Verse 5, he says, they don't ever have any problems. There are no problems with them. In verse 12, they live very carefree and, and comfortable lives. They never seem to work hard to gain their wealth. It just kind of falls in their lap. They just don't even have to try. Their investments never meet a bear market. Their Instagram account is always showing they're traveling all the time. How can anybody be on, anybody be on vacation all the time? And their family is always together and smiling. They have sculpted killer bodies. Well, they didn't say that, but it's kind of what the feeling, right? <laughs> How they exercise eight hours a day and still get anything done. Um, God, it would seem to all appearances that you're pouring forth your blessings on the wrong people. It doesn't make any sense. God, they're wicked. Verse 6, they're proud. They believe that they are self-made men. They don't give any credit to you for your blessings. Again, in verse 6, they're violent people. They have no qualms in squashing anybody that gets in their way. Verse 8, they mock you. They scoff at the idea of God and His universe having authority over them. Nobody has authority over them. They're quick to take vengeance. Lord, they have it all. I don't have anything. You are blessing the wrong people here. What's up? Because my experience is that I work hard and I try to follow your law. I deprive myself from doing what is wrong and really try to live rightly, but I don't seem to be reaping any reward for the effort. What's wrong with this? Verse 21, at least he's honest and he says, I'm bitter. I'm angry. I don't like it. You're blessing the wrong people. He didn't understand what God was doing. It didn't make any sense. And our question this morning is, how does he deal with this conundrum? What does he do? Because I think that's wherein lies our hope is if we do the same things that he did to recognize and come to the great doxology at the end of the chapter when he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you hear the difference? Man, at the first, he's just, I'm bitter, I'm angry. And then he said, my God is my portion forever. It's a great doxology. So he moves, he makes a movement. How does he make that movement? How does he get from point A to point B? I think the first thing that he does is that he reasons with himself. One of my heroes of the faith is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Anybody know about Lloyd-Jones? Okay. Um, He is my mentor from afar. He pastored a church in London during the Second World War. It was a Westminster um, chapel in London. And he taught me in one of his sermons something that I never forgot, I've never forgotten. 
He says, preach to yourself rather than listen to yourself. Best advice I've ever gotten, I think. Preach to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. In the first 15 verses of this psalm, the psalmist is listening to himself. He's feeling sorry for himself, full of self-pity. And he won't turn the corner in his emotions until he quits listening to himself and he starts preaching to himself. He asks himself, what do I know to be true? What is true? Verse 1, he says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Do you hear the difference? He listened to himself and got in trouble. But when he started preaching to himself, he says, I know this to be true. He reminded himself of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and the nation of Israel. He reminded himself how over and over again that God had been good to Israel. The grand miracle of rescuing them during the famine and then leading them out of Egypt. Keeping million strong people alive in the desert for 40 years and then going into the promised land and nobody could stop them. He reminded himself of the promises that God had made and how over and over again he had rescued Israel, his people. He reminded himself that God can be trusted to keep his promises. He just could not ignore the evidence. It was great, too great to ignore. What do I know to be true? He asked himself, what do I know to be true about the wicked? Verses 16 through 20 and 27, he reminds himself that in verse 18, that they walk on slippery places. That they're never secure. They're never safe. They're always on the precipice in danger of falling off the cliff. Their wealth and health can be stripped from them in a moment's time. Just like that. Verse 19, they will be destroyed in a moment that terror awaits them. Verse 20, he says, the truth is God despises them. They will not receive the mercy and grace that he gives his people. And there is a judgment day coming that they will from his hand receive the full force of his justice and his wrath. Verse 27, he says, ultimately, the wicked will perish and God will put an end to them. This is terrifying. When the God of the universe stands against you, when he says that you will experience the full measure of his justice, my friends, that is scary stuff. And so the psalmist reminds himself of what he knows to be true. When he begins to see the plight of the wicked, when he begins to see their end, the ones who have set themselves up in opposition to the Most High God, the clouds start to thin. And he starts understanding what is true. When he considers what is true about God and the fate of the wicked, his perspective Changes. He sees that his perspective has been skewed and, and has been wrong. He says in verse 22 that he was like a beast before God. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? I was like a beast 
senseless and ignorant. So what does he mean about that? Well, I'm just an old farmer, and I've probably spent more time with cows than I have with people through my life. And so that's what came to mind. A cow, a beast. I've had lots of opportunity to to observe a cow, and my observation is that she never seeks or thinks much beyond her next mouthful. It's kind of it. It's all she ever thinks about. I've never seen a cow look philosophical or look at the beauty of a sunset or a starlit night. I've never thought that her she was contemplating the meaning of life at all. I think that's where it comes from, that, that phrase, creature comforts. Her sole consideration was simply creature comforts. And I th- think that's what the psalmist is saying. I was thinking like a cow. I was thinking and considering just the here and now, thinking only about my creature comforts. The error in my perspective is that I was not taking into account eternity. I wasn't thinking about forever. I wasn't thinking about what happens after I die. The psalmist recognized that there is coming a day of judgment for all men. And in light of that day, when we all stand before God, it's ludicrous to envy the wicked. It makes no sense at all. In that day, a man's prosperity or his poverty makes no difference whatsoever. I mean, it's a non-issue. Right now, it seems so significant. But in that day, when we stand before God, all that just melts away. We're not going to wonder what kind of car we drove. Or how big the house, whether we lived in a mansion or a tent. It's just not going to matter. He says, this life is short and it's not the end. I love what he says in verse 20. He uses a metaphor. He says, this life is like a dream. So what is he saying about that? I think it's. He's pointing to the momentary nature of our existence on earth. He says it's just like a dream. When you think about it, the emotions that you feel in a dream are real. Who hasn't woke up sweating or frightened with your heart going like this from a dream? Those emotions are real. Have you ever woke up mad at your spouse because of something they did in the dream and let them know about it? That was an interesting conversation years ago. But they seem so real, don't they? They just seem so real. And in a sense, they are real to my emotions. But in truth, they're only fleeting. They come and they go. There's no permanency in a dream. No matter how vivid the emotions. That's why I think the psalmist is saying prosperity, poverty, health, sickness, pain, sorrow. Everything that we experience in this life 
when seen in light of eternity, is like a dream. Now, it doesn't feel like it right now, right? Let's be honest. When I'm in pain, it seems like an eternity, but it's not. But seen in light of eternity, it is but as a dream. So, the psalmist has blazed a trail for us to follow after him when I experience those times when it seems like God doesn't make sense. So, what do we do when God doesn't make sense? The first thing I want to suggest is that we think. What are you tempted to do in those times? Feel. I tend to rely on my emotions. Too often we try to feel our way through difficult days. Now please, don't take me to say that, I'm, that emotions aren't important. I'm not saying that. I'm not telling you to deny your emotions. I'm not telling you to suppress or bury them. In fact, that's exactly the opposite of what the psalmist did. He didn't deny his emotions at all. Truth be told, he's a lot better at identifying what he's feeling than I am. And I appreciate that about him. So I'm not saying emotions aren't important, but I'm saying they shouldn't lead the bus on this one. They shouldn't drive the bus. The path that the psalmist took to his well-being wasn't through his emotions, but it was through thinking. Remember what we said earlier about Lloyd-Jones? Preach to yourself, don't listen to yourself. My favorite question in the world, and if you've spent any time around me, you know, is what is true? Not what anyone else may be telling me or what I'm even telling myself, but what is true in this situation? Let me encourage you to practice prudence. I'm on a one-man uh, uh, one crusade to bring back the word prudence into our, uh, our conversation because the definition of prudence, I love, it's discernment and action in conformity with reality. That's what it means. Discernment and action in conformity to reality. We all need a healthy dose of prudence. When God doesn't make sense, the first thing I must do is ask myself, what is true in this situation right now? What is reality? Let me suggest three questions to ask. First question, what do I know to be true about God? That's what the psalmist did. What do I, need to, what do I know to be true about God? I know God is good. I know he's wise. I know he's righteous. I know he's all powerful. He can change anything with the breath of his mouth. I know he's ever present. I know he's just. I know he's sovereign and compassionate. I know that he is gracious and kind and merciful. I know that he loves me. These things we can stand on. We know these to be true about God. The place to start when God doesn't make sense is with Him. 
I'm to remind myself who he is and what he has done in the past. I'm not saying that this contemplation will bring understanding of what he's doing. Probably won't. But you will be able to trust the man, to trust the one who is in charge of the situation. It will foster trust and belief that I can trust him to act according to his character. It's okay if I don't understand. Most of the time I won't. I'll probably have lots of questions. But this I know. I don't question his goodness. I don't question his wisdom. I don't question his sovereignty. And I sure don't question his love for me. If I stand on those truths, then I have, if I don't stand on those truths, I have nothing to stand on. Both feet firmly planted in midair. In my personal journey, little by little, I have, little by little, I've starting to learn how to embrace mystery. I didn't like it before. I wanted to have all my ducks in a row and in a box and everything settled. But, you know, I'm, I'm finding more comfort in mystery than ever before. And it brings me comfort because I know that he is infinitely more everything good than I am. And I've begun to understand that if I, under, if I truly understand everything, then God is no bigger than I am. And he has a little more power than I do, and that scares me to death. So I don't have it under control. But if I don't understand, it's just one more, one more reason that I recognize that he does. And he's infinitely more powerful and wise than I am. And so it brings me comfort. I don't have to understand. I may not know much, but I know he's worthy of my trust. And that's all. I can trust him. So what do I know to be true about God? Second thing, second question, what do I know to be true about eternity? I've come to believe that although painful, life's difficulties are God's gift to his children. And I know that seems opposite of everything that we tend to feel. But life's difficulties are God's gift to his children. Now don't hear me say that I like them. Because I don't. I still think it's his gift. Because they serve to remind me that the here and now is not all there is. Furthermore, it creates within me a deep longing for a time when it's not going to be this way. And so he reminds me of eternity. In fact, in my moments of greater clarity, when seen in light of eternity, my struggles become more transient and temporary. Like the psalmist, more like a dream. Don't deny the emotions in the middle of them, but I know they're short. In those dark hours, and believe me, those dark hours will come if they're not here now, I'm confronted with the fact that even in the happiest of circumstances, everything in this life is fleeting and will disappear in a moment, and there is coming a day when 
My pleasures and joy will never end. And maybe it's age, I don't know. But um, it creates within me a yearning for that day. So I ask myself, what is true about God? What is true regarding eternity? And what is true right now is the third question. What is true right now? There is a truth that has become more and more precious to me through the years. And that is, He is with me. As simple as that is. He is with me. Verse 23. Psalmist says, He promises that He is with me. Verse 24. He promises to guide and direct me in the way I should go. Verse 26, he promises to be my portion. He has given to me the greatest gift, himself. He is my portion and my strength. The wicked may have their fortune and fame, but I have something so much greater. I have the gift of himself. I have a gift of his presence. Verse 28, he promises to be my refuge, my home, the place I run to, the place I come back to over and over again, the place I can run in the midst of pain and sorrow and doubt and fear. I I have a home there. He'll be my refuge and strength. There's no greater gift that God can give you than himself. I don't care what it is. He is the greatest gift. And if he gives you everything in the world, but he doesn't give you his presence, he's only giving you the second best gift that he could give. I don't care what it is. His presence is the best gift that he can give. And that is what he's given to you. His presence. So what do you do when life doesn't make sense? You think. You preach. What do I know to be true about God? What do I know to be true about eternity? And what do I know to be true right now? So as we finish up our thoughts, I'm reminded of another time in history when God didn't make sense. Nothing made sense. Think about the cross of Jesus. If you were one of his disciples... What about that made any sense? He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He's come. He's going to rule and reign. And now he's dead. Tell me how that makes sense. If you live in the presence of Jesus when he walked on this earth. In that moment... Nothing made sense to them, but what do you know to be true about the cross? You know to be true that what is true about God is that the cross was the greatest expression of all of his character that has ever been expressed. At one time, he was just and righteous. He showed that He had chosen a people for his own possession and he chose to rescue them and he couldn't simply overlook overlook their sins or he wouldn't be good and just. So he sent his son to bear the sin, the penalty of our sins so that at one time he would be the just and the justifier. 
So we see his justice and his righteousness. And it was the greatest act of love and mercy that the world has ever known. He sent his son punished in our stead. What about the night before? Do you remember? He says, disciples, I am going away. Well, how'd they feel about that? Right? They were sorrowful. They grieved. What? You can't be. You can't be going away. But then what did he say? Do you remember? But I am going to send another in my place, and it's going to be better. Boy, that made a lot of sense, didn't it? Better than you, Jesus? But now we know that the Holy Spirit is here, and he can be with us all at the same time. Do you see? Back in the crucifixion, nothing made sense. But in God's economy, it all made sense. So, I know there are things that you experience that don't make sense. I know things that I experience that don't make sense. I'm not going to have all the answers. I am going to have a lot of questions. But when they come, ask yourself, what do I know to be true? About God, about eternity, and about right now, His presence with me. And then more than anything else, trust Him. Just trust Him. Especially when you don't have all the answers. Let's pray.